I really felt that we needed as an audience to feel the anguish, the turmoil, the courage of Trish, and we had to be with her, and we had to just feel her more. And in order to feel her more, I wanted to add those nightmare scenes because I just feel it was enough for people to say she's having nightmares. I wanted us to feel viscerally what you know the stakes of those nightmares were. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a landmark Supreme Court case transforms the nation in director Michelle Danner's crime drama, Miranda's Victim. The film tells the story of Patricia Weir, who in 1963 was kidnapped and brutally raped by Ernesto Miranda. Her commitment to putting her attacker behind bars destroys her life as she triggers a law that transforms America's legal system. In addition to Miranda's victim, Danner's other directorial credits include the feature films The Runner, Bad Impulse, The Bandit Hound, Hello Herman, and How to Go Out on a Date in Queens. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Danner spoke with director Sarah Pirazek about filming Miranda's victim. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Hi, hi, hi. I brought some cheat notes here. What a jewel box of a period film. Such attention to detail. It was so, so beautiful, Michelle. I'm, I really loved it. Um, I Thank enjoyed, you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I had the joy of watching it twice recently, so I'm really happy to see it again. Um, it's such an important subject and elevated by incredible performances. Um, the thing that I learned about Michelle is that she grew up in the film industry and her father, she was kind of like Caroline Kennedy playing under the desk of the White House. Her father opened the first William Morris in, um, I'm trying not to be too loud here, um, the first William Morris in Paris. So she would hide under his desk and hear all these wonderful stories from actors. So it's not surprising that you became a director. She's a stage and film director. She's also a renowned uh, a coach, acting coach, uh, casting director occasionally, uh, and some of the people that she's worked with, such as Gerard Butler, Penelope Cruz, James Franco, Salma Hayek, Chris Rock, among many, many others, and this incredible cast um, in your film. So, so happy to have you. Literally a stellar cast in your film. And also, yes, yes, clap. It's an amazing cast. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And also, you were a producer on the movie, and you must have been thrilled when you fir your first actor you booked for the film was Donald Sutherland. Yes, he was the first one to say yes. And I remember we were location scouting, and the word came that he had said yes. And he was always my, had been one of my very favorite actors, because also he reminded me of my father. And so when he was the first one to say yes, I felt my father was looking down and, uh, you know, helping. 
yeah. giving a little nudge there. Yes. Uh, what I thought was also interesting, Michelle and I had a conversation yesterday about the film a little bit, and the casting, you know, came very much from your relationship with other actors and what I thought was very interesting when we talked about this it's it's not only uh, a crucial ruling in the Supreme Court and um, you know now added to a rule in the Constitution but it also deals with um, you know the rights of disenfranchised people and can you talk a little bit about your casting for that because you had said that uh, your your relationship with um, who was it? Enrique. Enrique Murciano, yes. Detective Cooley. Yes, who did an amazing job. Can you talk a little bit about casting him and who he brought to the film? Yes, so I was his first acting teacher a zillion years ago, and he was one of my first students. I cast him in my first movie, How to Go Out on a Date in Queens, uh, a comedy, and I always kept in touch with him throughout the decades. Every single time that I was getting ready to cast a movie, I always wanted for him to be part of it. So I would call him up, and he was always working. He was always busy. And this time I called his agents. His agent said, nope, he's busy. So I called him directly, and I said, hey, how do I get to, you know? And he said, I'm going to have them kill me off my Netflix show <laughs> so I can come do this with you. And he did. He did that. He was in the night agent. Um, he is a great actor. I just love all the subtleties and the complexities that he brought to playing Detective Cooley. He came as all of this cast did with their hearts and their choices. And I think, you know, elevated and illuminated this important story that needed to be told. Absolutely. And then who did he introduce you to that he brought to the And he said, you know, I'm going to help you with Andy Garcia. Because it's hard. This is an independent movie, and it is, it's not easy to get cast. I know it looks easy now because we did it and we got it, but it wasn't easy. Um, so he, that phone call that he made was incredibly helpful with Andy mm -hmm. to get him on board. Yeah. Yeah, and I know that you'd said it's very important for you to have Latino actors in the roles that, um, you know, were playing against uh, the the uh, antagonist, who was also a Latino guy, so it was very balanced in that way, and it was exactly. important. Exactly. That was a choice, yes, that it should not be all, you know, white men that would incarcerate a Latino man, although he did what he did. Yes, no, I know. And that's why this film is, is, uh, it's very elevated in a way because it's a complex film. It's not just, you know, good guys, bad guys and what happened. Cause you could almost see Ryan Philippe as being a bad guy in it because he's supporting this, this guy, but he's not. He's supporting the law. So it's really interesting how you developed that whole storyline and wove it through Abigail's story. Yes, that was something that was not in the script, but we discovered it in the editing, that the first trial needed to be seen through John Flynn's eyes. And, um, yeah, I mean, they say it's true, you know, there's the movie that is the script, and then there's the movie you end up shooting, and then, of course, there's the movie you discover when you're editing. And you have to be open to turning things upside down, which we were. <laughs> we really turned it around. I mean, you know, this audience has a lot of filmmakers in it, so people understand 
what it takes the to process, make. The yes. process, yes, and which is excruciating at times. I have such a love-hate relationship with process. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you have to just go go on the ride and, and see where you end up. But I think you did a really responsible job with telling that story and because the script came to you. It wasn't something that you wrote and developed. Yeah. But you worked on it and you did develop it subsequently. You improved added scenes, or I shouldn't say improved, but you honed it, shaped it, sculpted it a little bit. I did. I think it's every director brings that, you know, you have an idea of how you're going to shoot it, what maybe is missing, mm -hmm. and, uh, and as much as possible, you, uh, you add that. Um, but yes, I was really happy that this movie came to me. It, it was offered to me, um, and then I went and I met and I you know, campaigned for the job, and then I didn't hear back for several months. And I thought, oh, well, I didn't get it. This is a real bummer, because I really wanted to direct it. And then it came back around, so I've always believed in what's meant to be in life, and this was obviously meant to be. Mm -hmm. I think that your passion and your experience as an acting coach really shines in this film, and I think a lot of uh, directors can make beautiful, beautiful shots, but often are frightened of actors. You know, they're a little bit, not frightened, but trepidatious. And I felt like the, there was a mastery in how you shaped the performances of your actors. I was very impressed. Um, and I, when we were talking earlier, I said, how do you, do you, are you someone that likes to give notes? And Michelle said, oh, I love to give, I give a lot of notes. So I give notes. But not all at once. <laughs> right. In, in parts. Right. Which that's another thing directors can learn. Yes. From you. If I see something and I see like seven things that I would like to, you know, be improved, I'll never go up to an actor and give them seven things in a row. I'll tell them a few things, and then I'll see where that takes us. And maybe in the next take, it's all good. Mm -hmm. Or not, then I have to offer a little more and a little more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was, I, I, I asked her, how did Donald Sutherland deal with the notes? And uh, you were saying that even he... He wanted feedback. He wanted me to tell him, how's, how's, how am I doing? Because uh, I thought to myself, what am I going to tell Donald Sutherland? I mean, let's be real. I'm not going to say anything to him. But he, um, we started a dialogue. He was, you know, absolutely wonderful to work with. He is a gem um, on, and on every level. And he was so passionate himself about the character and, and who this judge represented in the story and historically and he was he had done all the research and he had read all about it and he was just um an incredible joy to work with and yeah his performance was was so restrained and that's exactly what it needed to be i love that it was restrained but you felt there was like a steel underneath it um and he wasn't on screen for long but made a huge impression uh and another thing that we had discussed because i was trying to glean as much as i could from michelle uh it's a master class just talking to you on the phone and uh she was saying um that uh, she's very keen on working with actors and their backstory. If you could talk about that a little bit. I mean, it's obvious, but it would be great to hear a little. Yes, I'm just a great believer for, because of how I was trained. I studied with Stella Adler and with Uta Hagen a million years ago. Uh, 
you know, the power of backstory for a performance that you dig into it, you inhabit it, you bring the flame through your body and then you let it go. And I think that gives an actor every golden moment that they could want, every organic impulse. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm, uh, I, I'm just a great believer in, in, in building that in going deep with that and answering all those questions so that it gives you the freedom to risk with the character. Right, right. And then just let go into the character. I mean, what I thought you built really beautifully was the um, mother, daughter, sister triumvirate of the three women living together. And it was so uh, complex and beautiful and fractured the way families really are. Um, and you could just see under the, sort of running under the relationships, tension and love. It was fantastic. Well, that was an interesting thing. Yes, the complexity of that. We talked about a secret that they had which I can't talk about, but it was a secret that they shared, the three of them. And I really think that that showed up in their relationships, in their work together. I mean, obviously, Abigail is incredible in this part, and Mireille Enos, her mother, you know, I just, after I cast her, I realized I had like a light bulb. I was like, oh, I saw her in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway. She was nominated for a Tony for playing um, Honey. And uh, but I had seen a lot of her work. And uh, yes, she's fantastic in The Killing and many uh, other things, yeah. In the, yeah, and Emily Van Camp uh, also, I thought was a phenomenal Canadian actress. And they really looked like this family. And we talked about it. We talked about the relationship and the layers. And the first scene that Emily Van Cam and Abigail did in the first court courtroom, they um, they had no words. They just sat next to each other. And I got chills and I started to almost cry because they had such a connection. You really felt who they were emotionally to each other. Um, yeah, that really worked out. It, it was wonderful. And it can go the other way sometimes. So you, it was gold. You were, you know, gold in your pocket. It was really, really wonderful. Um, what was I going to say here? Oh, Abigail. How did you, how did you end up with Abigail? I mean, she's so amazing. Yes. I mean, at first I, I had a lot of pictures on my desk and I was looking, I was thinking, who do I go to for this? And and for some reason, I had like 20 pictures on the left of my desk, and, and she was on the right by herself. And I heard this voice inside of me that said, stop effing around and just get a real actress to play this part. I literally heard that voice. So we made the offer that afternoon. She read it the next day. We met the day after. It went that quickly. And we went for coffee, and we looked into each other's eyes, and we said, we're going to do this together. We're going to tell the story. And her and I... Um, have had a real profound connection and we get along so well working on this that we ended up doing another movie after this together <laughs> called a comedy called the Italians. That's so great. And you were also saying that you have a great relationship with Luke Wilson. Yes. Luke, I thought was my Atticus Finch. I mean, he came and he was, you know, the hero. Um, he really understood how to play him. He just really understood what to bring, even the way he speaks. 
you know, the language, the way he masters the language and the character. And he's so wonderful. He's a wonderful actor, but he's wonderful in this part. Mm -hmm. And again, another restrained performance that was very powerful. It was all there. He didn't have to do much. So that's kudos to you for just giving him that space to do that and then rain, you know, not reining him in, but keeping him on, you know, on track, which is sometimes hard because when you're passionate, people want to pound the table and overdo it. And you just... No, he was very grateful for everything. Him and I just really get along beautifully. And every time I said something, he was like, thank you. And, and then he just rolled with it. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I'm sure you'll be working together again in the future. He's really incredible. Um, the other thing that was really striking to me was the, it's a classic film. It's a classic film about, uh, you know, an era that has gone, that has passed, and the way that you made it visually with your DP and even the cutting style felt very classic the shots, even when you did a little bit of handheld, it was so restrained again, is that word? Um, it, 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 I felt safe in your hands. When, when the movie started, I thought, okay, I'm with a filmmaker now, and I could relax back and watch the film. Do you want to talk a little bit about your DP and your relationship? Yes, I spent a lot of time thinking about the color palette for the movie, what it would look like. Um, I did want to shoot it in a classic way because the story had never been told. I just didn't want it to be, you know, uh, get an angle or stylize it. I just wanted it to be told in, I don't want to say a simple way, but a tissue. The lensing was also classic, too. I mean, you had, I I noticed in one of the photographer's uh, photographs of the DP that it was cook lenses, and I can't remember, and I was like, it's just classic all the way. (laughs) Well, we talked about wanting to shoot this on film. Uh, anamorphic lens on film and of course it just costs more money um, so I have two of my producers that are here today Brian Drillinger and Valerie Devler oh. and Valerie who pointed out to me how much more money <laughs> yes yes that's good to applaud them because like they said the movie did not produce itself no. <laughs> um, you know it just costs more money to to do it on film and also my son who studies film and theater at USC said to me you know you you should not do film he said to me because you like to do a lot of takes <laughs> and so that's not going to work for you and i'm like yeah well you know i just feel if i had to fight for film for a movie i would have fought for this one because it was 1963 and it's right. a period piece and although i knew and i was very um aware because I was also a producer of the budget and the money that it took. I was, as a matter of fact, my DP can tell you the story. I was on the phone with Kodak getting like a deal on the film and getting a deal on the cameras. And, uh, but my really, I had done another movie with uh, Pierluci Malavasi before nicknamed Gigi. We did the runner together and, uh, we have a wonderful short, you know, hand with each other. Um, it helps you speak Italian. She also speaks four languages. Yes. Yeah, so we, we spoke Italian lots of, now not too much jokes on this set, but on The Runner, we laughed more. Uh, this one, we laughed a little less because sure. we just felt the responsibility of telling this story. But um, yeah, him and I talked a lot about shots, and I had, uh, I didn't storyboard the whole movie, but I storyboarded some pivotal parts of the movie. Which sections did the you feel? The rape, the, court, the big courtroom scene, uh, the doctor scene, which was, I felt, an important scene. We storyboarded that. Um, yeah, I find that it helps. You just hit all the beats you need. 
because then you go, why didn't I get that one moment? And that's the other thing I really appreciated about the film was that you gave a lot of private moments to Abigail so we could be with her and sort of allow things to sink in, allow moments to land on her. That was really beautiful. Yeah, and that was a choice. I mean, me and and, uh, Gigi looked at each other and I said to him, king speech. And so he knew exactly (laughs) what I meant because it's got those shots of him, you know, being alone. so yeah, no, it was great. And you were saying that you'd you'd added some sections, and some of those sections were the private moments. And yes, I really felt that we needed as an audience to feel the anguish, the turmoil, the courage of Trish, and we had to be with her, and we had to just feel her more. And in order to feel her more, I wanted to add those nightmare scenes. Because I just feel it was enough for people to say she's having nightmares. I wanted us to feel viscerally what, you know, the stakes of those nightmares were. Yeah, and film's a visual medium. It's see it, don't say it. Yeah, it's great. And the other thing that really um, uh, impressed me was there was a theme of justice that ran through the whole film. And it was the justice for the person who may have been wrongly accused at some point. So, you know, the story of Miranda rights within your story, that strand, and there's the strand of justice for her, and then justice for the mother in a way, um, for her backstory to have some healing in it. And then ultimately, you said you added the end with um, him dying in that uh, card game, um, because we wanted to feel a, a sense of justice for Abigail's character. Absolutely. I thought it was important to tell the full story of this, the whole story, not just part of the story. Because, uh, you know, at some point when I had a first cut, there was like uh, some of the feedback was, let's end it when she comes out of the courthouse. Mm-hmm. But that's not the full story. I mean, the full story is that there's karmic justice. And there was karmic justice for this man. He didn't do 20 years like Judge Wren, you know, sentenced him to. He did eight years, and he came out, and he did get his finger chopped off, which I thought that that also was quite fascinating, considering all the talk and the transcripts about the finger versus, you know, the penis, and that he did get that finger, you know, chopped off, and that uh, we needed to see him to see him die because karma is a bitch, and uh, <laughs> yeah, full circle, you know. So that was important, and in, and in fact, his killer was read his Miranda rights, and uh, to this day, you know, escaped. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, do, are there any questions for anyone? Uh, anyone in the audience have any questions for Michelle about process or the actors? Well, we shot some of it in Arizona, the Maricopa Courthouse. But uh, interesting in La Phoenix, Arizona, does not look like what. But however, towns in New Jersey do, and also it was very hot in Arizona during that time. I, I actually went. It was a defining moment in my pre-production. I went to uh, the the Paramount Theater, which looks so much like Count Basie Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. Uh, I went, uh, you know, the bus stop where she was abducted, the house where she was raised in, the house where he was arrested in, the courthouse when he was indicted. I did, I took the drive to the desert, the 20 minutes that it took. I remember standing at the bus stop and I just started to cry and I surprised myself. Myself. I was like, because wow. I thought to myself, 
you know, if, if she hadn't taken that bus, if she had taken the earlier bus, if she hadn't had the crush, it wouldn't have been her. Right. It would have been somebody else because he was out looking. So it would have been someone because he was a serial, you know, rapist. But it needed to be her because amongst all those constraints in society in 1963 and her mother telling her don't do it, she had the courage, she really, and went and relived it several times. So, um, no, New Jersey, we shot in Middletown, we shot in Red Bank, we shot in, um, what was the other city? Monmouth, Monmouth University, we built the courthouses. Those were perfect um, towns to shoot this movie in. But we also have Arizona in it, too. Do we have any other questions? Uh, okay, so, music selection for the period, which was f phenomenal. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, my son <laughs> helped with that quite a lot. Um, he loves music. As a matter of fact, fun fact, that first song, Saturday Night of the Movies, which he had picked, uh, cost $300,000 to get, so we couldn't afford that at all in our budget. So he went into the studio and he recorded it. Uh, yeah, and he was sick that day too, but he did good. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, yeah, he uh, and it cost a whole lot less. So I that's bet. a good thing to know. If there's a song that you want that you cannot get, you know, get the publishing and and and, and record. You just pay it. the publishing rights. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fantastic. And then you know, and then the last song also was amazing. Uh, yes, the last song too, and. Uh, yeah, that last song was not exactly the one he initially picked because we couldn't get the rights to that either. But uh, but this song uh, was our music supervisor offered us a selection, and we found this song, which turned out to be great. For every accident, for every actor you can't get, for every song you can't get, for every location you can't get, um, you just have to trust that there might be something better around the corner. And every time you look at it, you go, you know what, this turned out better. Right. It's the happy accidents, the serendipity of yeah. the universe brings you things that you just wouldn't expect. Um, any more questions? Uh, the question is, um, uh, when she chose to tell this story, when Michelle chose to tell this story, did she meet with Trish? Did she talk it through with Trish? And how did she feel about it? Yes, I did. Uh, she is... Um you know, she, she has, still has a lot of emotion about it. She hasn't been able to watch the movie all the, the way through, but she's watched a lot of parts of it. I was with her uh, in an event, was it last month in New Jersey, where she was introduced to everyone. And so I brought her out, and 700 people rose to their feet. And uh, it was a big moment. It was a big moment because I think that so many people applaud this kind of bravery, this kind of strength. I mean, she was 18 years old. She was innocent. Yes. She got her innocence taken away from yes. her. And she fought for justice, for what she felt was right. And then the other thing I want to say is, um, uh, one of the things I realized working on this movie and also uh, touring the festival circuit with it, we opened in Santa Barbara, we were the opening night movie, and so many people in all different cities in the U.S. came up to me at the end of the movie, moved with tears in their eyes, and they said, thank you for telling this story, because I was not able, I did not tell my story. Right. Um, and it just it made me realize just how many, many stories. So there then are. the postscript at the end of the movie took a new meaning for me when they said, you know, 5% get justice and then the other crimes go unpunished. You know, I thought to myself, you know, this is a reality. 
Right. And that's why this film is so um, prescient now. This is ongoing. This is something that needs to be thought about. And, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very important film, even though it's a, a, a period piece, a set in time piece. It's also very modern. And I think you did an amazing job. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all. And because we're an indie movie, if you like it, please, I, I've been saying this, you know, after the screenings, go on Rotten Tomatoes and rate it, go on IMDb and rate it. Uh, that would really help us because there's a lot of movies, as you know, a lot of content, and we're trying to, you know, for people to see it. So thank you again. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. And Sarah, thank you so much for My moderating. Pleasure. My pleasure. You. It's an honor. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.